Good morning, everyone. Yeah, the stories uh, this morning in pre-service prayer, it's pretty amazing to see the things that God's doing, the way he's stirring people and kind of these, these divine appointments that happen. And they're not, you know, they're not just uh, coincidental that uh, God is directing those things. And that kind of leads me right into what we're talking about today. Uh, we're, we're in the second chapter of Esther. Uh, let me kind of recap very quickly uh, what we talked about last week in the first chapter of Esther. First of all, uh, understand that the, the book of Esther is right up towards the end of the Old Testament. Okay? This is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's uh, after the Babylonian Empire when the Israelites are taken into captivity. And so now we're in the Medo-Persian uh, Empire. Uh, a lot of things going on. King Ahasuerus is his name. He's the king of Persia. History knows him as Xerxes. And um, a lot of things going on. There's already conflicts going on with Persia and Greece. Because Greece, in about another hundred years, is the next world power. And of course, this is all revealed to Daniel a hundred years before. That he lays this out and he shows all that's going to come. What an amazing God that he's, he does this. God, everything, yesterday, today, tomorrow, he's in control. He's in charge. He has a plan. So, and here's another, another point of reference. Some people know about this. Um, there was a battle called Thermopylae. You, know, you may not know that, or you may know a movie called... 300. Anybody know that movie? 300. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Feedback. Yes, I love it. And uh, that's a skirmish, a skirmish with Greece. And uh, of course, it, the reason it's so well known is because um, the, the Greek soldiers, Spartan soldiers, uh, small in number, something like 300, don't know the exact number. And they, they managed to hold off a vast army of Persia. They use the landscape to their advantage. There's a, you know, some people say a million, there was not a million. Historians say more like 100,000, but clearly the, the, the odds are against the Greeks. But they used a mountain pass to negate that vast army. But I'm telling you this so that you, you understand the context of what we're talking about. So these, these skirmishes going on, and then in 100 years, Alexander the Great uh, uh, is victorious over the Persians for the next, to be the next world power. So, King Ahasuerus, he holds this feast, and he, what he's doing, he's going, look at, look, at the, look at my empire. Look how great my empire is. Look how great I am as a king. Nobody's like me. We talked last week about pride. In the course of all this going on, his wife, Queen Vashti, he calls her to appear before what is probably uh, a drunken horde. And um, Queen Vashti refuses. At the advice of uh, his advisors, the king removes Vashti from being queen. And so that's where we are. I'm going to read through chapter 2. It's a little bit lengthy. Bear with me. And then we're going to really get into the whole, where we're going with this. After these things, when the, king of, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susha, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, Benjaminite, the tribe of Benjamin, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, Jeconiah, sorry, these names, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, Hadassah is her Hebrew name, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in course of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the king of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred to her or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtham and Tresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your amazing gift of your word, Lord God. And Lord, it's by your word that, uh, that uh, you make yourself known to us through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, Lord. Father, we pray, I pray, Lord, that today you open this word to us, Lord God. That by your spirit, you show us your truths, your eternal truths, Lord. And that we would know you more, desire to know you more, and desire to love you more, and to serve you all to your glory, Lord. Amen. So, what I'm going to attempt to discuss this morning is something called providence. Providence is a vast subject. Providence is, um, at time, can be difficult to comprehend. It can be controversial. So understand that I'm going to do about a 30,000 flyover of providence. And I'm trying to show you how providence has worked through the entire Bible and how that impacts you in your life. So you, you look at the things of Esther. Esther is a fascinating book. And as we get further into it, the plot just continues to thicken. This would make a great movie if somebody could do it right. Um, you know, you look at what's going on, and, you, and even here where, where Vashti um, does not respond to the king, she's removed, Esther is now the queen. That is not just a coincidence. That's not happenstance, serendipitous, fortuitous, whatever the word you want to put on it, it's not a coincidence. This is part of God's plan. Now, another thing about Esther is it's rather famously known as the book that never mentions God. Never mentions him. The great Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, states, God's name is not in it, but God's hand is certainly in it. And this is so true. So in the, in the weeks to come, as you see the things that are happening, know and understand that God's at work. His plans cannot be thwarted. And these things are put in place by him. So, first of all, sovereignty, providence. Sovereignty that God is authority over all things. There's nothing on heaven and earth that is not under his authority. Jesus said that. At the end of his ministry, he said, all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth. So, providence, as I I searched for trying to get the words right, I come across the Westminster Confession of Faith, which states, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, depose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge, foreknowledge, and the free and immutable, unchangeable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, 
goodness, and mercy. So, I'm, again, I'm going to just do this, this swoop through on providence and how, and how this kind of plays out in, in uh, Esther. I'm going to talk about providence, about how it impacts three things, nature, man, and governments. Now, that's, that's, that's not doing it justice. There's, there's so many things, again, that can be talked about in Providence. And each one of these, nature, man, governments, there's, you, can, you can really dive into this. And um, quite frankly, at times it can be a rabbit hole. It can go, you can go down this thing and go, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Uh, I've been studying for nine months. I've been studying this, this book simply called Providence by John Piper. And uh, many times I had to back away from the book. And you know what I did? Because sometimes it's just like, I, my, my finite mind cannot comprehend this. I can't comprehend this. And I was reminded when Jesus was talking to the disciples and he said, come to me like the little children. And we know how children are, especially, you know, I don't know, four or five, six-year-old, something like that. And... Um, you know, they'll ask you a question, a question that, you know, like, why is the sky blue? Now, I know, and, and Dusky could probably give you the answer. He's a scientist. He, he gets those things. I don't know. Typically, you make up some thing, or you just simply say, I don't know. And uh, usually, that's good enough for the kid. They go, okay, and they move on. Well, sometimes... Um, you see things that are just beyond our comprehension that we're never meant to understand because God's mind is so far above our mind that you just, sometimes you just go, okay, God, I don't understand it, but I trust you and I believe you and it's good enough for me. Okay. I'm going to start with, um, with creation with Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever and may the Lord rejoice in his works. Matthew 6, the first great discourse of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And he, I, I, he starts with saying this, and I, I, I know this would be more for my next topic, which is the providence in man. But he starts off by saying, do not be anxious about your life. Well, this is really the theme of my whole talk this morning is, because God is in control, we should not be anxious about our lives. Now, I know that's easier said than done. He goes on to say, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Hebrews 1.13 says, he, Jesus, 
is the radiance of the glory of, Father, of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So at um, Stanford University, uh, they, it's the site of, a, of a, a linear accelerator, an atom smasher. It's a two mile long thing. I don't know what it looks like. It must be quite impressive. And it's a device by which uh, scientists try to you know, pry off the secrets of, of, of matter and, and understand uh, the atom and proton, you know, neutron, those things. And uh, linear ex- uh, accelerator scientists have discovered a complexity that they've never dreamed of. They've found particles that they cannot even invent enough names for. But one thing uh, they are consistently discovering is that some strange force holds everything together. They don't know what to call it. They don't know how to identify it. They talk about some sort of cosmic glue that holds it together. And with that, let's go to Colossians 1:16, 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and here it is, and in him all things hold together. You know, it's, it's interesting how scientists, uh, they, they, they feel like they gotta prove everything. They gotta, it's gotta be solvable, it's gotta be seen, and yet there are many things on earth and in the heavens that they cannot explain. And yet they take on faith through their own understanding what they want to believe. But God's word clearly says that God created all things and he holds everything together. Everything works according to his will. The universe behaves in order because of Jesus. The fact that the earth is perfectly positioned the distance away from the sun it is that it sustains life is not a coincidence. He's in charge of everything on earth. The, the, the laws of physics obey his commands. That's hard to comprehend, but so is God at times. God is mysterious. His ways are so far above our ways, and isn't that the kind of God that you want to serve and love? So let's move on to providence and man. Now, this gets really tricky, but I'm intentionally staying away from it. Because the great debate will always come down to to some degree. Calvinism, predestination, and Arminianism, free will. I am not going there. I suggest search that out with the direction of the Holy Spirit 
and you and you do you dig that in for your, in, into that for yourself. In Jeremiah, one verse five, it says, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you." Let's go back a little further. Ephesians. One, three verses, uh, one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose, here we go, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should live, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, not only did he know us, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. He knows who you are, every one of you. He knows who you are, he's fully aware of your life, of your pains, your struggles, your joys, the things that you desire, he's fully aware of it. In Acts 17, So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, that's a, um, like a supreme tribunal, said, uh, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very righteous, or religious, sorry, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God that made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples, temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of one, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He is not far from us. If we're Christians, his Holy Spirit dwells within us, guides us, encourages us, corrects us. But his chief purpose is to make God known to us. And continue on in Romans. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I cannot tell you how many times when I've been in a bad place and I've struggled to understand what was going on. And uh, sometimes these things had been going on for a while. It wasn't uh, days or weeks, but a while. And I would say, Lord, 
Where are you? Can you help me? And I remember this verse, and I dwell on this verse, and it will change your heart. And it says, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things. So another story that's uh, rife with uh, providence. Go back to Genesis in the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. And of course, Joseph has this dream and uh, he, he shares his dream with his brothers in the dream. Uh, the brothers are all bowing down to him, which didn't go well with the brothers. Uh, they plotted against Joseph, thought about killing him. Instead, they sell him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. He's, he's purchased, he's a slave. He's purchased by a, name, a man named Potiphar. And he serves in his household. Potiphar's wife, Uh, We're told Joseph is an attractive man. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph many times. Joseph holds back her advances. And one time uh, he he goes to flee from her. She grabs his garment, it rips. And then she fabricates the story of how he he assaulted her. And uh, this is the evidence of it is I have his garment and he fled. Joseph is thrown into prison. He's there for quite some time. Uh, while he's in, in uh, prison, he's like Daniel, uh, he reveals some dreams to uh, Pharaoh. And um, eventually, is, is, uh, after the, uh, he sh- explains these dreams, he's released from heaven, and, and now he's the second in charge in Egypt. There's a, fam- there's a famine in the land. God has told Joseph to store up food because there's going to be this great famine. Seven years. He does so. It says you can't even count how much food he stored up. And at some point, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to purchase grain. And of course, they don't recognize Joseph. And there they are before Joseph, his brothers. At one point, Joseph says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So here we see a grand uh, example of God's plan. I guarantee you, at some point in prison, Joseph was got to be asking, what's going on? Why am I here? He's helped uh, Pharaoh before, still in prison, not released then. Hey, remember me. Didn't happen. But we see that God is working out his plan and that through Joseph's obedience, the nation's saved, and they don't go hungry. Okay, let's move on to 
nations and governments. This gets really interesting. This is a challenge. Nonetheless, we believe it. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Whatever king it is. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a problem with pride too. Even after God revealed himself to him, he still erected statues to himself. But in the end, Nebuchadnezzar, after he's, uh, he goes crazy. He's out out in the field eating grass like uh, cattle and oxen. But he, he repents and later glorifies God. So we can see that God, even in Nebuchadnezzar, does a work. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. I, I, I've had to remember that a lot of times when I think about, I, I, I don't like politics, I don't like to talk about politics, I avoid it. But certainly with some of the presidents we've had lately, you know, I've had to dwell on this and go, okay, God's in charge here. I don't get it, doesn't make sense. But the Bible is clear that God sets those authorities in, all authorities, even at work. There's the challenge. And somebody's mistreating you, and you say, well, the Bible says that God put them there. Luke 1, 52 says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a challenge. Can be. Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Many people have uh, debated, you know, uh, all that happened with Jesus going to the cross. And uh, sometimes it's like, well, who's responsible for that? And, um, you know, well, it was the Jews. It was the Pharisees. It was the uh, Sanhedrin. It was, you know, and and ultimately the the Romans played a role. Uh, But Acts says this was God's plan. It's God's plan to thwart the enemy and to reclaim the kingdom that is rightfully his. You know, these things, like I said, they can be challenging. We, we can know them with our mind, but sometimes it's a real challenge to the heart. When I was, um, when I was 11 years old, my family traveled to New York State to see my aunt and uncle. While we were there, um, 
we went to see Niagara Falls. And Niagara Falls is on the border of New York and the Canadian province of Ontario. Uh, it's an impressive site. It's like half a mile wide. I remember the day, even though I was only 11, and that was a long time ago, but I remember the day very clearly. It was a very bright, sunshiny day. We parked on the Canadian side. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. When we got out of the car, because we, we had to park like a mile away, and when we got out of the car, it was kind of surprising to feel this, this mist in the air. It's like, wow, the mist from the falls. I mean, we're a mile away, and obviously as you got closer, it got heavier. Another thing about that was the thundering of the waterfalls. You could almost feel the ground shake. When you got up next to the falls, uh, really, you couldn't hear the person speaking to you because of the noise of the falls. So in the 1800s, there was this, this Frenchman, and he was a famed um, tightrope walker. He called himself the Great Blondie. And he determined that he would get a rope across somehow, the chasm of Niagara Falls, and that he would traverse that rope from the American side to the Canadian side. With great difficulty, the 1,100-foot-long rope was stretched. Crowd gathered at the first crossing because he did this many times. And some 5,000 people were gathered as he stepped onto the rope and began to cross. And you can look this up. Google it. There's pictures of him, newspaper articles of him that you can read for yourself. But it said that, that many in the crowd, when they saw him out on the rope, 150 feet above the water. And understand this. You know, when you stretch a rope tight, you can't ever get it so tight that it's just perfectly straight. There's going to be some sag to it. So you're going to kind of walk down it and then back up. As he began to cross, many people fainted. He successfully crossed it. And in fact, as I said, he did this many times. Each time he did it, the crowds increased in size. Once uh, uh, even a president was, was there, Millard Fillmore was there once. He performed crazy things on the rope. One time he's in the middle of the, the rope, he stopped, he sat down. There's this, this boat still there today called the Maids of the Mist that go up to the falls. You have to wear raincoats because you're gonna get drenched. And the, the, the boat stopped underneath him and anchored. He sits on the rope, he lowers down another rope, he pulls up a glass of wine, drinks the wine, lowers it, off on his way. Another time, he stops, does a backflip, continues on. Now this is crazy. Once he carried a stove out on his back, small stove. Again, midpoint, he stops. He's got this, this pole that's like 25 feet long that helps him balance. He sits that down, he sits the stove on the pole, 
after getting the stove started, which I guess was difficult, he makes an omelet. He lowers the food again to the boat. Then, I guess, apparently, he, had to, he gave it enough time that the stove cooled off because he had to pick it up and carry it on. He does that. He once did part of the crossing blindfolded. It's, it's crazy. One time, he crossed, I think he crossed from the American side to the Canadian side. He takes 10, 15 minutes, he pauses. Then he produces a wheelbarrow that he's going to push across the rope. He turns to the crowd and he says, do you believe I can do this? And the crowd shouts back, they raise their hands, they say, we believe it. And he asks him again, are you sure? Are you certain of it? Yes, we believe it. A third time he asked him, do you believe it? Yes, we believe it. He says, who will get in the wheelbarrow? Well, would you? The rest of that story is, because nobody would get in the wheelbarrow. I wouldn't have. Probably because I wouldn't trust myself. You, you, you do something crazy and get off balance, you're gonna, off you go. His manager, the great Blondie's manager, had such confidence, had such faith in him, in the great Blondie, that he said, I volunteer that you carry me across. Now understand this, the great Blondie was a small man, only like 140 pounds. Small man. His manager was the same size as him. So he's taking some, that's like for me, I'm grabbing some guy that's 225 pounds and putting him on my back. No thank you. And he puts him on his back and he says, okay, now here's the instructions. You have to become like me. You have to go with me. If you try to correct what I'm doing, we will plunge to our deaths. He did exactly that. And he crossed with much fatigue. He made the crossing, carrying his manager on his back. My point is this. In our daily lives, as you live out your life, we know things. You understand things. I can say, I, I understand that. I, I can grasp that. But there are times when I go, oh boy. This is where the rubber meets the road. Is my faith this strong? Just like Blondin's manager had that much faith in him, do we trust God? Do we have that kind of faith to say, figuratively, I'll get in that wheelbarrow? Psalm 78. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come from the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. 
Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Well, this really shows the heart of of mankind, really. They had witnessed amazing things. They had seen the plagues. They were spared from the plagues. Passover was instituted at this time when they painted the blood for the first time on their doorpost so that the Spirit of God, the destroying angel, would pass over their homes. And they'd seen that. They saw the Red Sea part and stand upright before them. And by the way, it didn't just happen, boom, and it's done. Scripture says that the wind blew for a period of time to dry out. I thought about that before. I thought, wouldn't that be a muddy mess? But again, God provided. I get, I get mired in the details. I think, overthink things sometimes. Pillar of fire, by day he leads them by cloud, by night fire. They'd seen all these things. He brought water out of a rock. And yet they say to themselves, or they say to God, they say to Moses, can he feed us? What? Haven't you seen all that he's done already? And then you, you, you say, well, yeah, he did all those things, but what about feeding us? Of course, we know that the, that generation never saw the promised land because of their, their unbelief. But understand that Again, I'm going back to the grand plan of God. I love this book of Esther because you see, so, you see everything playing out that God has in place. Some of it going back hundreds of years. An ancient enemy of the Israelites rears his head again in the person of Haman. You're gonna see how Haman plots to destroy all of the Jews. And he's of a race that God had said, do away with them. Their, their, their sole purpose seems to be to destroy the Jews. So you see this disobedience played out hundreds of years later. But God has a plan. It's no coincidence that Esther is made queen that Mordecai overhears an assassination plot. It's no mere coincidence that the king will have a night where he cannot sleep. And he says, yeah, bring the, bring the chronicles uh, out and read them to me. I'll, that'll probably put me to sleep. And what Mordecai has done, revealing an assassination plot against him, 
that at Hazard should be reminded of that. These are not coincidences. This is God's plan playing out. His providential hand guiding it. There's a, there's a, a, a classic book on providence. Uh, it was written by a Puritan named John Flavel. It's called The Mystery of Providence. And it states, it is the duty of the saints, especially in times of straits, to reflect upon the performances of providence for them in all of the states and through all the stages of their lives. As I, as I wrap up, uh, the band, uh, if they would come on up. You know, this, this narrative of all the times that we see God's plans through the ages, from the beginning of time until the end of the book of Revelation. God is at work. His plans cannot be thwarted. Nothing that man does can negate his work. So, you know, we live in a time that is uh, stressful, confusing. You know, politics, the politics, you know, you see what's going on all around the world. And it can be disturbing. Yet know this, God's in control. God is sovereign. And through his providence, he's working all things to his good and to his glory. And I challenge you that as you work through the things that are difficult in your life, remember that. God works all things to the good for those who love and honor him. He has not forgotten you, not a one of you. He cares deeply for you. He loves you deeply, so deeply that he sacrificed his son for you that when you recognize what Jesus did at the cross, that you trust in him and say, I believe. Now, Lord, we do believe. Lord, we just thank you for your eternal promises and that all things are done according to your great wisdom and for your glory, Lord. Lord, I pray that these truths would be put deep into our hearts 
and that we would be like the tree planted by water, that its roots go deep and cannot be shaken. Ah, Lord, how good you are. What a loving, good, kind, holy God you are. Yeah, Lord. Lord, we just lift up your name. We worship, Lord God. We pray for all here, Lord God, that they know you and know you deeply. Yeah, Lord. As we lift up uh, songs to you, Lord God, may you be glorified. 